probably since the late 50s, early 60s, it is an institution. And it's, it's famous for having that wee twist where uh, instead of asking you a question and looking for you to give the answer, it gives you the answer and then it tries to get you to figure out what the question is. So, for example, the answer might be, he's an American astronaut with an aeronautical engineer, the first person to walk on the moon, a naval aviator, test pilot. And so then the answer would be, who is Neil Armstrong? And so that's, that's the idea behind it. So let me give you a Jeopardy answer, okay? And here we go, 41 million. So what's the question? Now, no shouting out, no raising hands. Just uh, have a few suggestions in your head. 41 million. What could the question possibly be that the answer is 41 million? Well, we had the football transfer deadline day on Thursday. Maybe you're thinking, well, maybe that's the amount of money someone paid for a footballer. It's not the right answer. Maybe you're thinking, it's Davy Rutherford's retirement fund. <laughs> Double it. <laughs> 41 million. What could the question be for such an answer? The answer is a sad one. The answer is the number of abortions that were carried out in the last calendar year globally. Now, I'll say that that's actually a conservative number. Um, I was doing my research. The World Health Organization says that they believe the average to be about 125,000 abortions a day which would, according to my calculations, take the number closer to 45.6 million. Now this morning, I don't want to necessarily talk about abortion. I want to talk about the sanctity of life. Uh, we'll be starting a new series uh, in two weeks' time. Alan will be speaking next Sunday. And so with the um, Hope series finishing, I wanted just to take this morning to maybe do something just a wee bit um, separate. This is really coming out of the outrage in my own heart from the recent ruling in New York that uh, is now allowing abortions up to full term. So now it's five minutes before the baby comes out, it's still okay to decide to abort, which to me is just all kinds of evil. Now, I did speak on uh, the sanctity of life and things last year. Back in March, uh, we did a series called Distinctive and I went through with you the biblical reasons for our church's pro-life stance and why we are pro-unborn babies. And as Christians, we are pro-all life, from womb to tomb, as it were. That we believe that life, because we are made in the image of God, is absolutely, fundamentally precious. Now, there's a serious temptation just to repeat the sermon from March. I, I have all the notes. Uh, my, my views haven't changed. But I, I've tried to take, uh, as best as I can, a completely different approach to teaching about this this morning. So if you, uh, I'd point you to that sermon in March 2018 uh, for things like, where does life begin? Uh, when does someone have a soul? Those were the kind of questions that we were looking at. Those were the kinds of questions that we were trying to answer as best as we could. This morning, I just simply want to underline something really important. All life is precious to God. So allow me to repeat something that I did say back in March and what was said two Sunday nights ago here in the church service. Because I know for some, this is a very black and white issue. 
For others, um, it is all kinds of shades of gray. And for others, it's just very simply a very personal matter. So we need to be very clear, but we also must be very loving in how we deal with this topic. Now, when we talk about the life of Christ and what sets him apart from everyone else, it's very easy, as we're talking about the superheroes, we kind of go straight to the miracles. That's what makes Jesus so different. He's the miracle man. He does things that no one else could do. And you say, well, yes, absolutely. But something else that sets him apart is the shocking kindness with which he treats sinners. And here's what Jesus teaches about himself in John 3. We know verse 16 really well. For God so loved the world, he gave us his only son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But immediately after that, he says, but here's why I've come. God sent sent me in love, and I have come not to condemn the world, but rather to save the world from condemnation. So by and large, the propaganda that you will get about Christians, um, especially fundamental Christians and, and evangelical Christians, of which we belong, It is that we are all about the condemnation. We love condemning people. Oh boy, there's nothing that gets us happier than making everyone else miserable. And we just love it. You know, we're we're self-righteous and we smugly look down on people who don't think like us or don't act like us or don't believe like us. But that's not the savior that we serve and certainly shouldn't be the rhythm of our lives. In Luke 15, Right at the start, in verse 1, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were gathering together to hear him. And what Luke is telling us is that the people on the outside of society, they wanted to come to Jesus. They were making an effort to come to hear what he had to say. He had this draw to them. The undesirables, the people on the fringes, the people who actually weren't welcome in church, in the temple. Because these people that Luke mentions, the the tax collectors, the sinners, the the message from the church at the time, the temple at the time, was saying, you don't belong here. God's grace comes so far, but you are outside of that. You cannot get blessed by God. The blessings don't extend as far as you. God treats you differently than he treats the rest of us who love him and keep his law and are nice. But these people who the church were telling were beyond saving, came flocking to the Savior, to the Son of God, and they didn't feel judged. They felt loved. And that's the shocking kindness of Jesus Christ. It's one of the ways that we see the glory of God revealed in through Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, at least one that helps orient my heart back to this fundamental truth, is one that we did speak on two weeks ago in John chapter 8. Jesus is at church. He's in the temple. He's teaching. And all of a sudden, there's this loud noise at the back. So imagine that there's like a crowd gathering in the front door in the porch, and they come bursting in. And I'm in the middle of my sermon, and they start, and they fire this woman half naked in front of me and say, Jeff, listen, this woman was caught in adultery. So it's kind of a very unique, strange thing to happen. Now, if you remember, we, we did this two weeks ago, so I'm not going to repeat myself time and time again. Jesus deals with the crowd. He deals with the mob. And then the Bible says, and I'm trying to get an image built up in your head here so I can take you to where I want to go. Jesus lifts up her face, the tears and the snot and the sorrow, and looks her right in the eye and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she, she kind of wipes it. <laughs> They're not here. 
says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And two weeks ago, we used that as a picture of salvation, of what it means to come to Jesus, knowing that you're guilty, knowing that you're at fault, knowing that you deserve to be punished. And yet Jesus says, I am not here to condemn you, but go and sin no more. A picture of salvation, a, a picture of a new beginning, of a new life in Christ. That, that was the picture that we were trying to paint uh, two weeks ago. Um, he commissions her to go and begin again. The Savior who speaks up for us. That was, the, that was the sermon title. Now, this is the kind of radical kindness we see in the life of Jesus. And yet, even as Christians, my experience, by and large, is that we believe deep in our hearts, somewhere deep down underneath everything, is that Jesus fundamentally is constantly mildly disappointed in us, that, that he, he looks at our lives, he sees how we're going on, and just is constantly underwhelmed. You know that sort of feeling? And one of the things that's really powerful about this moment is that Christ is not outside of it judging this woman. He's actually coming into the moment, into that shame with her. Do you know the kind of difference it makes? when you actually believe that Jesus Christ isn't outside of your struggles, harshly judging and harshly condemning, but rather is in that struggle with you, longing to show kindness, longing to show that heart that says, let's begin again, let's get to that point of repentance and have that fresh start. And if you pay attention to the voice that's inside your head, because let's be honest, no one talks to you as much as you do, right? I've been in ministry long enough now to know the script that's on repeat in most of our hearts and most of our souls is a self-condemning one. That we're always just so scared that God's going to kind of show up and just out us for being kind of a phony, for faking it more than what everyone else is faking it. And we're just totally convinced that he's made some sort of mistake and we're going to get busted for being less than what we ought to be or less than what God expects us to be or less than what everyone else in church thinks we are. And it's a fear that governs and dictates our, and twists and manipulates our lives, robbing us from the freedom and joy that we should have in Christ. Remember, he doesn't love the future version of you that has it all sorted out. He loves you right now. He loves the real version, the current version. He loves that version. He loves you. And I want to sear that into your imagination. Jesus picking up the chin and looking right, looking at you right in your face this morning with, with the snot and the tears and the sorrow and the shame and the exposure and then saying, okay, look, I have come not to condemn you but to save you from the condemnation. That's what Paul's point in Romans 8 was when he says, who can bring a charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, there's nothing that anyone can tell God about you that he doesn't already know. And yet he is still chosen to say, but I have forgiven them. I, I've dealt with it all on the cross and it's fine, it's gone. They have a new life. They have a new beginning now because I have bought them, I have redeemed them, I have forgiven them. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? He's justified them. There is no sin more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. And for those who have been involved firsthand 
in this topic this morning that we're going to be touching on. The kind of darkness and the kind of brokenness that they are forced to walk in is beyond what the rest of us can fathom. So, if we touch on a sensitive subject like this without the framework of saying Christ is not outside of this moment, but rather he has come not to condemn, but to save you from the condemnation. I've come to pick up your chin. I've come to, to take your swollen, teary face and to tell you, I know, I love you, I'm here. Let's begin again. Because as we dive in, if you hear the voice of self-condemnation or if you're listening on the podcast and, and you feel that voice of self-condemnation, it's not the voice of the Lord. If you hear a voice that is condemning you, you're not listening to God's voice this morning. Because there is no sin, not one, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. For he has come to save us from condemnation. To shape us, not to shame us. Now with that, let's go to Genesis chapter 21. And as you do, let me give you an illustration of what we have been saved to become. Over Christmas, I really wanted my daughters to enjoy some of the classic Christmas movies that I love so much. My favorite is It's a Wonderful Life. And if you think that it's something else, you're wrong, but it's okay. Um, now, I wasn't going to uh, impose this on the girls because they might ruin it for me, and I didn't want that to happen. So I, I gave them the choice of Muppet Christmas Carol, um, of The Grinch, Miracle on 34th Street, um, and, and Die Hard. No, I didn't give them Die Hard. Um, but what I had to do was to give them the best possibility of picking the right film or the best film that they wanted to watch. I, I showed them a, a wee clip, a, a 60 second trailer of, of what it was. Now, you know what a trailer is. The trailer is that advertising, that promotional video that, that gives you a sense of what the film is about of what, and, and it gives you an idea of if you want to go watch it or not. Um, I couldn't even find a good enough trailer for It's a Wonderful Life to convince Ruth to watch it. She saw black and white and went, nope, we're not doing that. I thought, right, okay. But you see, here's the problem. When, whenever you know the movie trailer is bad, you lose all interest in watching the movie, right? If you watch that 60 seconds, and if you, if you, if you can't get the 60 seconds of the best bits to convince someone to watch it, you're not going to say, well, I, I want two hours of that. And so there was no convincing my family to watch a good film and had to watch Elf pretty much every day in December. But, you know, I believe that part of our role as believers is to be a movie trailer for God. To, to give people a, an idea, to hint, to suggest to everyone else what it might be like to be known by God and to be known by Him and to be loved by Him and to have that grace and have that fullness and have that assurance. And to experience that and to think, yes, if that's what it's like, I want the whole thing. I want to be part of all of it. I, I don't want to miss out on any of that. But imagine if the world looks at us and thinks, hmm, Jesus, I don't really fancy that. I, I mean, if that's what it's like, I wouldn't want all of it. I wouldn't know. Now, I know we're imperfect. I know we're not the full picture, but to walk into a gathering of believers like us this morning in church this morning should be to get a small taste of what it's like to be a Christian. To get a taste of who God is. Friends, we cannot afford to be so unlike our God that we represent that no one would want to watch the movie, as it were. We can't afford to be such a broken picture of who God is in the way we treat people that those looking on say, well, if that's God, I don't want anything to do with that. 
And so to talk about life being sacred, we have first of all to see that life is sacred to God. And if our job is to be the preview, if our job is to be that small reality that points to a greater reality, what is true about God must also be true about us. So let me tell you, here's where we're going, that God sees vulnerable people. He sees them. He responds to them in their need. God sees vulnerable people, and so should we. And that's my one point this morning. We're jumping into the middle of a few overlapping themes in the life of Abraham, so let me just give you the context. Abraham was promised by God that uh, he would have a family, uh, and they laughed. They laughed at God for Abraham and Sarah. It says, look, that's no way happening. We are way past that. And so what they did was they took matters into their own hands. Sarah said to her husband, look, here's my smoking hot Egyptian maid. Go have a child with her. And Abraham, he was an old man, but he was still a man. And so he went, okay. He didn't really put up too much of a fight. And so then Hagar, the the Egyptian maid, had a child called Ishmael. But God's promise would still come through, uh, come true about 14 years later. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90, but they had a child called Isaac. And then there's hostility between these two mothers, uh, between Hagar and Sarah, between Ishmael, who's 14, and newly born Isaac. And in verse 9 of Genesis 21, we read that Hagar uh, is, is laughing. We don't know at what, but she's just laughing. Sarah sees it and just flips her lid and says, Abraham, you'd better send her away. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the, ch- excuse me, along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Okay, so they get kicked out of the family. They lose the protection of the armed guards that Abraham traveled with. So they're now susceptible to bandits and to thieves. They lose their supplies. All they have now in the desert is what they are carrying now. It's all their food, it's all their water, and it's not enough. They've lost all access to the basic things that keep them alive. Ishmael has lost a sizable inheritance, and most importantly, he's lost a father. Together, these two people represent the most vulnerable people in society. Functionally, she's a widow, a single mother, a refugee. She's poor. He's an orphan. He's abandoned. He's disowned. Not only did they lose all they have, they lost any hope for a future. Their future extends only as far as their water is going to last in the desert, and it runs out in the very next verse. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Now remember, he's 14. He's not a small baby. But he put, she puts him under one of the bushes. She went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of this child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. This has to be, without a doubt, one of the saddest, most heartbreaking pictures in all of Scripture, in all of humanity. Here is a mother who is so convinced her and her son are about to die. She sets him under a bush and starts to walk away. Mom, where are you going? Mom, where are you going? Come back. But she goes far enough so that she cannot hear him cry. And the only question that she has as she lies down herself is which one of us is going to die first? I can't be near him if he's going to die in my arms. Is he going to go first or am I? 
as a dad, for me, that's just the stuff of nightmares. And then God intervenes. Look at verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? What a question. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin of water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. Now, here's my question. Here's my question. As God looked on them, why would he choose to save them? Their money? They didn't have any. Their influence? They didn't have any. Their, their, their prospects? They didn't have any. Literally, they had nothing of human value other than their humanity. So what do you say to God to make a case for them? What do you say to God to, to, to make him respond like this? Do you want any appeal that you can make to God in that moment if you pray for them as God? Save them because they're human. Save them because they're people. They're... And that's enough for God. That's enough for God. That's all he needs. This is what makes this story at the beginning of the Bible so staggering and yet so clarifying. Because from here, the story moves away from Hagar and Ishmael. We don't read about them again. They don't factor in again. It's all about Abraham. So why save them? They're not part of the story. <coughs> why do they matter? Why does it matter? Because they matter to God. Because they matter to God. Because all people matter to God, especially people who are in need. He says to Hagar, I've heard the boy crying. The irony and the beauty is she goes far enough away, a bow shot away, so that she cannot hear him. And it's almost like that intensifies what God is doing. Because as soon as she stops hearing, we read that God is listening. He sees and he hears. His senses are heightened, as it were. This is who God is. This is what God is like. It's the picture he gives us of himself and his word. He shows up in their life and changes it. It's an amazing picture we get in Genesis. I know we did a lot in Genesis just before Christmas with the life of Joseph. But think about this. Uh, and we get Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What an incredible, powerful, mighty God. Put this down. And yet now we have a God who sees and hears even the weakest child. The same God who puts the stars in space and planets in the sky is the same God who sees Hagar, is the same God who hears Ishmael. And verse 20, I think, is just wonderful. What does it mean that God was with the boy? It means, Ishmael, you lost your dad, but I'm going to be a father to you. That's what it means. God does not come as a handout to the fatherless. He doesn't come as, as an offering, a favor to the fatherless. He comes as a father to the fatherless. And that's one of the first times we see it in the Bible because this is who God is. God defines himself that way. Psalm 68 says, I'm a defender of the widows and a father to the fatherless. Is God and his holy dwelling. Which why I believe is why he gives us the commanding to do the same in Proverbs 31. Speak out on behalf of the voiceless and for the rights of all who are vulnerable. This is who he is. 
It is who he, is, who he wants us to be as well. It's part of the trailer, part of that movie sequence. How true does something have to be for you to define yourself by it? For me, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor. When I think of myself, my identity, how I introduce myself, how I talk to people, these are the things that I bring into the conversation. Who am I? Well, this is what I do. This is, you know, this is, I'm a family, I've got a family, and I'm a husband. How true does something have to be for it to be how you define yourself? And yet when God is describing himself, being a God who sees the vulnerable, it's so true to who he is that he leads with it. He leads with it. Father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. When God becomes a man, in the first question, who is he born to? Mary. Where does he spend his time? It's not palaces and princes. It's villages and peasants. This is who God is. Jesus' ministry. Can we move that on, please? Jesus' ministry is so much to the outcasts and needy and vulnerable by way of miracles and healings and teachings. This is our God. He is a God who sees people. He's a God who sees especially the vulnerable people in our society. The sanctity of life. Every human life is sacred because it bears the image of God. Life's sanctity needs no other argument than that. Now hear me. God's response to people who are hurting and vulnerable needs no more motivation than that. Neither do we if we are the movie trailer, if we are to be the preview, the representation, that small taste of who God is meant to be. If we're supposed to be capturing that reality about God on earth. Do you see people who need our help? Or do we maybe value people differently? The people who can boost our reputation, the people who can help our social climb, People who are like us, who think like us, who make us comfortable, who make life easy for us. You know, I wasn't even going to say, it can even start by where we sit on a Sunday morning. Do we just make a beeline for the people who we like to sit beside, or do we say, well, there's maybe someone who I could sit beside, who could maybe strike up a conversation, someone who I could help. Do we come to church with, well, what am I going to get out of it? Or do we come to church by saying, well, what can I put into it? world of difference. God demands that we as his people see the people in need who need us the most. Matthew 25, he tells a group of people, depart from me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink when I was wrongfully imprisoned. You didn't come visit me, you didn't help me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't do anything. And, and they're like, Jesus, listen, if we saw you, we definitely would know. I would have remembered Jesus if we had seen you sick and naked or in prison. We would have seen that. How did that happen? And Jesus says, when you didn't see them, when you didn't see the least, you didn't see me. Now look, it's really important to be clear that what I am not saying is that the gospel is just helping people. Okay, the gospel is about seeing the payment of our sins on the cross of Jesus Christ and then turning to him and trusting in him and repenting of our sins. But the true repentance must then lead us to love the Savior, to love the saints, and to love the sinner. That was last week's message, by the way. You should check it out in the podcast. It's really good. Let us not love just by word, but also by deed. 
we read in First John that uh, we read that in First John. James also tells us that faith without works is dead. Most popular story of love Jesus tells in the Bible. Helping people isn't going to get you saved, but it will show people that you are saved. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man dying on the side of the road, two religious people walk by. They're thinking about themselves, so they don't do anything to help. A Samaritan, someone who by default should hate him, sees him and helps him. Who was the good neighbor was the question. The one who saw as God sees, so go and do likewise. For us to walk by without seeing, for the people of God to treat people as commodities or as those who we can either use or ignore is to be a preview of a God who is not worth our time. And so as I close, here's my question. Here's my question. Where are God's eyes right now? Who does he see? Who are the vulnerable and the voiceless that Proverbs has been pointing us to? Well, one answer would be that God's eyes are on those babies in wombs who have no voice, who have no rights, who have no ability to defend themselves. 41 million in 12 months. 125,000 each day. That's three every two seconds. It's the leading cause of death on our planet. And I know the argument is that it's not death because it's not a person, but that just is such an ignorant, unsubstantiated comment, even by the science and, and by our experience. My two girls, hopefully, can we get that up? Now, they're still young enough, and it's fresh enough in my mind that I can remember the first time I held them. They were only born a couple of minutes, and then the nurse handed them to Ruth, and then I got in there straight away afterwards. From the first moment I held them, I would go to war for them without hesitation. My girls' lives are sacred to me. Each of them is worth defending, worth protecting. If one were in need, I know that the people of God in this church would prayerfully see and respond to that. But my question is, when does that attitude start? When does that begin for either one of them? When do I start fighting for them? When their hair started growing in the womb at 14 weeks? Or their wee chubby legs at six weeks? Their beautiful eyes at four? When I held them for the first time, I could feel their hearts beating. They started beating eight weeks after conception. So when does their life start to become sacred? Well, if I'm looking for the earliest scientific signs of when the life that I hold now first became a life, it's far earlier than when most abortions happen. When does their lives become sacred? When do we start caring about what happens? The mother decides that she cares. And if she cares right, well, then we're allowed to care. But if she doesn't care, we're not allowed to care. The contradictions are so rife. If we can afford to have the child, then we will post pictures and baby pics. But if we can't afford it, then it's okay to act like her life isn't sacred. Or the most devastating, what if she's healthy? 
then we'll just go on about her day. But if she was Down syndrome, then maybe it's not life and the pregnancy should be terminated as 67% of Down syndrome pregnancies were in America last year. 67%, two-thirds. 41 million, according to my stats that I was able to get, less than 1% of those 41 million were because of rape or incest. In fact, 93% of all the abortions carried out were on healthy mums with healthy babies. Think of the outrage that we have on social media when a video goes viral about a special needs child getting bullied at school. Oh, we're outraged. How dare they? Where do these voices go when the same special needs child is in the womb? and isn't even given a chance. When does their life start to be sacred? When do we start flicking the switch? It starts at conception. Maybe even before that, as God knows them and sees them. And maybe you're a little bit cynical saying, Jeff, like, that's a bit dirty, putting your daughters up on the screen. That's manipulative because you're making it personal. But that's my point. That's my point. It is personal. They're all personal to God. They're all personal to Him. He knows all of them. They're His children. And so let me ask you something. When will her life stop being sacred? When does God stop caring about the life that He has breathed into someone? His eyes are not just on the vulnerable in the womb, but also at the vulnerable at the end of their time here on earth. At what point can you stack something on top of one of their lives that will make them so unhuman that God would be blind to them? Is it when they start making mistakes? Is it one day if they're poor and don't have money or don't have help? Maybe one of them grows up to believe differently. And they walk away from church. They walk away from God, become Muslim or Buddhist or atheist, or maybe they announce that they're a lesbian, or maybe they announce that they're something else, or maybe they... What point do decisions and circumstances so strip her away of value that God stops seeing her? When does that happen? It never happens. It never happens. That's what the Bible's telling us. The, the publicans, the sinners, they flocked to Jesus and loved them because he loved them. If she was ever Hagar in the wilderness, confused or in need, if she was ever in the single mom, barely making it in the apartment behind your house, or if she was ever to be the person who's so easy to label and so hard to love, would God still see her? Yes. I hope so. I, I, I hope that we would do as well. Do you, do you see me? What we mean by sanctity of life is that we as a church are a people who will always meet people with dignity and help. We will always turn our eyes towards a person in the womb or towards a person in a mess or towards a person in need. That is who we are because that is who our God is. Because we are the people of God and God is the one who sees and lifts up our heads and says, let's go and begin again. Is there people that you're blind to, folks? Is there people that you have no time for, no interest? May God open our eyes to see that we can be the preview everyone deserves to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
forgive us for our blind spots. Forgive us for walking by. Forgive us for the cynical attitudes. Lord, we pray that as a church we would find our voice for the sake of those with no voice. Lord, that we would be there for those who are lost and struggling and think that this is their only option. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and mobilize us and use us. Lord, we, we, we see in Daniel that he weeps and he prays and he seeks forgiveness for the sins of his nations. They weren't sins that he committed, but Lord, here we find ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our nation, for our coldness and our attitude towards those who are most vulnerable, most precious. Lord, we pray. Stir up your church, Lord. Mobilize us to do something, to respond in some way that the world might see in us the God who you really are. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. We're going to sing another song, and then we're going to go into our time of...